0: All right, ready? Ready. Okay, when you watch the
1: next four the One race, don't it up. Watch it with us.
0: Tune in the Fast and Loose Sidecast hosted by The Kid Miro and me, Michelle Beadle. He is funny, and I will be there.
1: And she also knows what she's
0: talking about. Mm. We go live on AMP every race Sunday. That is right. Download the app and follow us at AMP Presents F1 on AMP. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to jumbocasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.
3: You're listening to Puck and Roll. Here's your host, Patrick Lorty.
4: Today on Puck and Roll, we interview Anthony DeMarco from the fourth period. We also chat with Kevin Reason, a huge Habs fan and also advocate for mitochondrial disease awareness. He taught Prospect, the Nordiques, and more. You're listening to Episode 5 of Puck and Roll. everyone and thank you for joining us for another episode of puck and roll your weekly roundtable discussion all things canadians i'm your host patrick lorty and we will immediately begin with version 2.0 of the habs blists it is my pleasure to introduce maria buabdo as the new voice behind the segment with all the latest munchal canadians news
3: Hi everyone, my name is Maria Boabdo and it's a pleasure to be here as your voice for the Habs Blitz on Puck and Roll. The NHL off season is finally coming to an end and some news has been released this past week involving the Montreal Canadiens and their fans. So let's recap. First of all, Canadiens owner and CEO Jeff Molson promoted France-Margaret Belanger to President of Sports and Entertainment of Group CH. She's the first woman executive in the Canadiens' 112 years of existence as a franchise. But usually, when a woman is put into a position of power, there are those who claim it's just another publicity stunt to gain sympathizers. But if anyone read her resume, they could easily deduct that she truly deserves this position. Belanger is also currently serving as NHL alternate governor to Molson and sits on the NHL Executive Inclusion Council, appointed by Gary Bettman. She has been with the organization since 2013 after joining the team as senior vice president and chief legal officer after spending 18 years with the law firm Steichman Elliott. After climbing to the ranks of executive VP and chief legal officer, Belanger also held the title of executive vice president and chief commercial officer after having the role to lead the hockey marketing strategies. Finally, in 2020, her duties were expanded as she took care of leading the entertainment group all while overseeing legal and public affairs, as well as community relations. Belanger has already gone to work in her new current role. She announced she intends on creating a program for younger players, which will focus on educating them on the seriousness and consequences of inappropriate actions and words. Everyone is always hearing that, quote unquote, hockey is for everyone. And this is a step that shows gender diversity is important and should be more visible in the Canadians organization and in the NHL in general, especially when you have the resume to back it up. (laughs) The Habs also announced their new podcast entitled Real Talk. It's a bilingual podcast in association with the Scotiabank Hockey Club about, quote, subjects that matter from two SLGBTQI plus issues and race to finding ways to grow the female game, unquote. There will be four episodes in the first season, and it will be interesting to hear from players and other members of the team about topics that might not be talked about as openly as they should. It was also announced on Wednesday that the Habs rookie camp will be starting on September 15th. There have been many speculations about who will be invited to Rookie Camp on the internet, just like on our show, with our Prospect Heroes segment. The list will be released shortly and will feature some very hungry prospects. Once Rookie Camp is over, the participants will then gather at the team's golf tournament on September 21st. Training camp will start on the 22nd, and the first preseason game will be on the 25th against the Leafs in Toronto. So mark your calendars because hockey season is closer than you think. (laughs) That also means golf season is ending soon. Head coach Dominique Ducharme held his charity golf tournament on Thursday, and some familiar faces were there, including Josh Anderson, Jonathan Drouin, and Mathieu Perrault. After a few months of silence about Drouin, Ducharme finally announced that he has been working out and getting ready to get back to the team. According to Ducharme, Drouin is relaxed, confident, and excited to come back and show who he can be. And we are just as excited to see him back on the ice. It also seems like Carey Price will be back in the first few days of training camp, which is amazing news considering he just had knee surgery in July and was expected to need 10 to 12 weeks of recovery. There is also some broader news about how Canadian teams are implementing new COVID restrictions for next season. The Calgary Flames, Vancouver Canucks and Winnipeg Jets announced they will require all fans to be fully vaccinated at least 14 days prior to any game they attend. The Edmonton Oilers and Toronto Maple Leafs are giving their fans the option to either be fully vaccinated or present a negative COVID test within the last 48 hours. The Canadians haven't announced anything official as of yet, but the province of Quebec will be implementing a vaccine passport starting September 1st, making regulations already available regardless. Sports venues, including arenas, are on the list of places that will require proof of vaccination, so people will need to be fully vaccinated to attend a game at the Bell Centre. Many Quebecers are opposed to the idea of vaccine passport and some ticket holders from different teams have claimed they would be giving up their tickets because they don't support the team, arena, or province's decision. However, that is up to them and giving up their tickets will be another fan's gain. So you can bet arenas across Canada will be packed and extremely noisy regardless. A big change from last season's empty seats and fake crowd noises.
4: Maria way to go for our first segment that was a lot of info right (laughs) we are very very proud of you by the way that was an incredible first segment thank you so much and you bet that you know we all of us here are going to be cheering very hard very loudly when the season starts because hey it's been a while since we had a full regular 82 game schedule and there's a lot of expectations going on as of course you've heard in the last few episodes am I right now, at this time, we are going to present to you a, a pre-recorded interview that I have had with Mr. Kevin Reason. Kevin Reason is a defender and advocate, uh, if you will, of mitochondrial disease, which is something you have probably seen on our uh, social media that we have posted uh, because we, uh, we have decided to support this cause. Um, I have sat down with him one on one. Um, And he's telling us uh, his incredible story of his son, Liam, and of course, uh, his friend, Stephen, who is dealing with his partner, uh, Bethany, who is at the hospital as well. So let's take a minute and uh, listen to this interview. As you all obviously know, Puck and Roll first and foremost a hockey podcast. Sometimes, however, we sway a little to the side and support our local community in order to help and support those in need. As you might have seen on pinned on our Facebook page, I, alongside my wife and child, will be taking a walk this upcoming Saturday with hopefully many others to support mitochondrial disease awareness. And it is my absolute pleasure to welcome one of the organizers of the event, Mr. Kevin Reason. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Kevin, along with Stephen Bedard, has launched this first of hopefully many annual dog-friendly walks, which will take place this Saturday, August 28th at 10 a.m. at Parc Champlain in Kantiac. So, Kevin, can you explain to our listeners, in your own words, you know, I'm a little bit of layman's terms because I've made some research online, and of course, you know, you get all the medical lingo and whatnot, what exactly is mitochondrial disease and the various forms it can take?
1: Yeah, so uh, mitochondrial disease um, is a, a, a genetic disease. So um, everyone everyone has mitochondria. Uh, and then the lack of mitochondrial, that's when it becomes the mitochondrial disease. Um, and at the end of the day, there's many, many forms of this disease that have their own name. Like um, my son has polgy, there's parsons, there's lays, there's, there's all kinds of, of diseases. But at the end of the day, um, it affects your organs. Uh, it affects, in some people, their ability to walk, um, talk. Um, so I always, to make it simple for the listeners, what I always say is, is imagine having a battery run your household.
4: Yeah.
1: That kind of sums up what mitochondrial disease. There's not enough energy to function the body and the organs.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and unfortunately, there's no cure there's, there's, you know, we have cocktails of medications and vitamins. that can keep a, a person stable and keep them functioning, but there's no cure and the outcome is not good. Uh, so, you know, the goal is always to, to, to bring in new medications to see if we can, we can prolong cause we're, we're all literally buying time. Yeah. Uh, waiting for research.
4: I've read also on, um, well, I mean, I saw that the, the Facebook invitation and everything and we were mentioning that specifically, you know, uh, we're dedicating this uh, to your son, Liam, and also Bethany, who is Stephen's partner. Um, right. So, um, I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it, I'm, I'm choking up a little bit because, you know, being a parent myself, you know, like I cannot imagine day to day, you know, of having to, uh, not only, you know, you're putting on a strong, like, you know, a stronghold, strong front, your child because according to him you know him his days goes on as you know as normal almost but I mean like as a as a parents I mean I'm getting I almost feel bad asking you this but I mean you know for for anybody else who, who who has children who are you know visiting the hospital on a daily basis I mean is there a trick you know, really to say, OK, like, you know, in order to stay strong, in order to move forward, especially when you're you're facing this kind of, of, of you know, of, of outcome where you said it yourself, like there's no known no cure for now.
1: Right. So, yeah, it is, it's an excellent question because um, I do talk to a lot of families because resources are so limited and, and, you know, a lot of the doctors are still learning all about this as well. Um, so what I, what I do see talking to families, uh, all across Canada is that as soon as they get the diagnosis of their child or their, their wife, their spouse, their partner, whatever, they immediately lose hope. Yeah. There's no hope. They're devastated. You know, a lot go into depression. They're, they're all they see is their loved one is going to die. That's, that's, that's their feeling. And it's every single person I've spoken to that gets this diagnosis, uh, off the bat. So, the The goal in that is to, and and you know we do the dog walks and we do other events as well, is to get that awareness out. And you know what? There there is a little bit of hope. There's no cure, but we have to bring back the hope. When when I I first found out about my son, when Liam had was diagnosed with it, I think I was angry for the first three months, extremely angry. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you get a little depressed. You you just don't know where it's going. So. But then I said, I got to turn that anger into doing something. And that's when I created the Liam Foundation and, and, and doing what I'm doing now and reaching out to families and families reaching out to me. Because there's, in, in most cases, it's cocktails of medication and, and vitamins to keep that person stable. But there's no, there's no quick fix. There's, there's, there's nothing. So for me, my goal, uh, I work very close with the Montreal Children's Hospital and the, the foundation, of course, is to get that research center at the Montreal Children's Hospital. That's the goal. Because that, yes, it's for children, but I'm I'm a MITO advocate for everyone. So having that type of research center at the children's hospital will help adults as well.
4: Let's talk a little bit about Liam and Bethany. You know, like tell yeah. like tell, tell us tell us a little bit about them. I know they don't have the same type of of disease. So maybe what, what are the differences between both of them and you know maybe just present them to us as what kind of people they are. Yeah. So
1: so I'll start with Liam just uh you know, so when Liam was born, he was born healthy. Uh, there was no issues. Um, everything was perfect. And then around four years old, even before that, a little bit started to, to see that he, you know, he, 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 he started walking very young. He started talking very young and, and even his words, he was, he was well behind. So, you know, we went to see doctors and, and he ended up getting diagnosed with autism. So, yeah, so he started off with autism and and, and, you, and you live with it and, and to be honest with you, I think autism's the purest form of a human being to be honest with you. so
4: absolutely
1: I, I, yeah I, I just loved it and, and it was okay and we had a little bit of struggle with it, but we moved on. but then at age five, that's when he, he had a seizure. Um, and he, some kids with autism, maybe they have seizures once in a while, but this was so he ended up staying in the hospital for a month mm. and he had daily seizures. So the doctors at the Montreal Children's Hospital had no clue what it was. And we were taking blood tests and EEGs and scans. And they finally got the seizures under control with medication. And then he was diagnosed with epilepsy. At the same time, me and my wife got a blood test uh, because they were thinking, let's just check the genetics. Let's see if there's anything there. And to our surprise, it came back that both uh, me and my wife have a gene that's mutated and it's very rare that it happens to two parents and it's the pole G gene. Oh wow. So the POLG G gene. So we actually passed that on, on along to Liam. And I mean, we got it from, you know, whoever we We're not looking for who, who gave it to us or whatever, but yeah, so that's what happened. So from then after the seizures, he lost all the ability to walk, to talk, you know, to, to like, when he does walk now, like with therapy and everything we have him in therapy, it's a struggle, you know, I don't want to make light of it, but just to kind of give you a visual, he walks like he's, he's drunk, you know, the, the stability of it. Or someone
4: with Um, vertigo for that matter, right? Like when we're kind of.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, but in his little world, he's happy. So, you know, this happened two years ago, Uh, started the foundation about a year ago and, you know, things, things happen. And, 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 you know, just by doing this, uh, this, this is a thing that's, and I'm glad we're talking about it because within a couple of weeks, the Liam Foundation is bringing um, a medication from Europe. Okay. Uh, it just got approved by Health Canada. This is specific for Polgy disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Liam Foundation will be funding it. It's just under about $50,000. So Liam will be the first recipient to get this medication. And we're also going to be funding five other children in Quebec that have oh, pulgy.
4: Wow. Fantastic.
1: So that's, that's yeah. all about awareness. And that's all about you know getting her done. When it comes to Bethany, I've I've known Stephen. I I've skyped with Bethany a couple of times. Bethany, it's 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 quite devastating because from zero to 21 years old, she's in perfect health, living life, going to school, thinking of her career, thinking of you know very young, and then all of a sudden she has a fall, similar to like Liam. You just yeah. like fall down, your legs to give out. And then she's been in the hospital since January of this year and has Mm -hmm. not left the hospital. Um, And she's had a lot of ups and downs. You know, she has good days and bad days. Over the last couple of days, they've been fantastic. After I speak to Stephen, she's been on her laptop. That's the first time she's been on Facebook. You know, in in Bethany's case, it, it does affect... Liam it affects multiple organs in Bethany's case it, it also affects uh, you know different organs and she has lesions on her brain mm-hmm. so it, it, it stops her from having the ability to, to talk or, or or you know walk I mean I don't think she's walked in eight months right. uh, she's just been in a hospital bed so but what's beautiful about Bethany is that she she's she's almost like this is not supposed to happen she's not supposed to go on her laptop you know, but she's, she's just, she's surprising everyone. She's surprising the doctors. So, and this is just the last week because, you know, she's had her up and, ups and downs, but yeah, it, it, there's differences, but the core is the same. It yeah. affects your abilities to, to, to do the walking and talking and thinking and, and this and that. So, and because Liam has, has autism too, he, he was always kind of nonverbal, but now he's really nonverbal. Okay.
4: So okay yeah. so let's talk about a, a little bit about the this awareness walk that uh, you and Stephen have organized uh yeah. first of all i love the fact that it's dog friendly i mean you know it just it seems like it's such a basic thing but the fact you know is bring your animals make already makes the, the 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 mood a little lighter so to speak and from what i understood on uh, the event page uh all the little furry friends will be receiving a green ribbon because from what I from what I've read on on the well not just the Liam Foundation's page but on your event page, green is the official color for mitochondrial disease. Is that correct? Yeah, that
1: is correct. Yeah, so that you'll you'll see a lot of cities across uh, the world, and you might see it lighted up green. So hmm. uh, mitochondrial disease awareness, they give us a week. There's a week. Uh, the last uh, third week of September is mitochondrial di- disease uh, awareness week. So you'll see a lot of cities and you'll say, what are those green lights or that street will be green light. So yeah, it's definitely green. Mm. So actually Steven came up with the idea and, um, because Bethany loves dogs. Yeah. So, uh, he came up with that idea and he's, he lives in the South shore. So he came up with the idea. We talked about a dog walk and we said, well, you know, we're going to have a little barbecue over there. We're going to have, you know, things we can sell for the foundation, uh, and just give that awareness and and people are going to talk and there'll be hot dogs and maybe corn on the cob. So um, it's just to get people talking about it. It's the people that in, the, the other people in the park that are not participating to come see us and say, hey, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. So it, it's not definitely about a big donation day. We're not worried about that. We're worried. We just want to spread awareness. That's all we want to do.
4: Absolutely. And yeah. and in a, in a way, that's kind of what you've done well with me straight up admitted that I'd never heard of the disease before until my wife came up to me, told me Bethany's story. And I was like, well, yeah, I want to spread this as well. And it, and it caught my attention. So I'm hoping, you know, just what you and I are doing right now will be a conversation that other people will be having, you know, not just on Saturday, but, you know, for years to come and find, you know, obviously bring, you know, this, this cure once and for all. Right. Exactly. And you know, that like the biggest thing for me, and, and I just think, and it's so
1: important to me and, and, uh, on this mission, this has become my life, my passion, uh, mm-hmm. the Liam Foundation, is that, you know, someone listening to this might know someone who has mitochondrial disease and they don't know who to reach out to. Right. Uh, but I'm, I'm always available. I know that hope thing. I'll, I'll talk about that hope thing. They, they lose the hope. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll help them bring it back. Yeah. And then we can work together to keep some, keep some faith.
4: So if, any, if anyone wants to make a donation, where can they go? there's two ways you can go to the
1: montreal children's foundation so they, mm-hmm. there's a link there and you, and you put in liam foundation and it'll bring up liam's page you'll see him kind of um waving uh out, out back in my yard <laughs> or you can go to the uh, i i do have a website it's the Foundation.net. Mm-hmm. and then there's a little donation button there that brings you right to the montreal children's foundation so
4: so the walk is this Saturday, 10 a.m. We are starting at uh, uh, Parc Champlain in Cantiac And it's apparently it's going to be about a two-kilometer walk or so. You re- it was really- Yeah, about a two-kilometer.
1: I'm not too familiar with the South Shore, to be honest, even though I work here. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not too... But yeah, Stephen was telling me it's about a two-kilometer walk. Right. Um, and yeah, we'll be out there. You'll see us. There'll be a couple of tables out there. So when people arrive, they'll see me and Stephen wearing uh, green Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll be there to greet them.
4: So Saturday, August uh, 28th at 10 AM meet at the uh, park Champlain and also bring your friends, bring your dogs for an amazing cause. Kevin, before we end this, uh, we were chatting before the, the, this recording and, you know, this is a hockey podcast and, you know, I heard you were a little excited when you heard like, you know, we're talking about the Montreal Canadians. But uh, before I ask you the ultimate question, uh, we were talking about Chris Nyland. You said that you yeah. met him and that he made a, lo- a long-lasting impression on Liam, right?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. So uh, Chris Nyland, we, we had first met about a year and a half ago at uh, kind of like a restaurant, and he was sitting at our table. And then from there, you could see he, he he's just... Such a tough guy. We know his reputation, but he has the biggest heart in the world. Absolutely. So he, he's uh, jumped on board to, to help Liam. I was uh, about a month ago now, I was on TSN 690 and on his show. And he took about 10 minutes with me on his show. It was amazing just to spread that awareness. During the during the interview, he just asked me if uh, Liam was a hockey fan as well. And I said, absolutely. But, and, and this is true, Liam likes the, the old school fighting, you know. <laughs> so um, Chris loved that. And he ended up sending him six or seven autographed photos of him from back in the day. So it was quite exciting and Liam loved it. So
4: He really is a generous person. Absolutely. He really is. How about a prediction for this year, Kevin? How are the Mm -hmm. Habs going to fare after this improbable run to the Stanley Cup finals last year?
1: Yeah. You know what? Like when we look at what they did, it was amazing. I mean, it was amazing what they did. Uh, Everyone kind of gelled together towards the end. So it was really nice. I think we have a, we're missing a few more pieces, so hopefully, uh, uh, Mark Bergevin could could maybe uh, look at making a trade or doing something. But I think the Suzuki, I think the Cole field and these guys are going to even be better this year. Uh, we we have Price, we didn't lose them to Seattle, um, so um, <laughs> it, it, yeah, I, I I I think we're going to still have a good run. I mean, we got a few little parts that bug me, but mm-hmm. I could see us. Um, I'm a real Habs fan. So I say, we're going to win the Stanley cup.
4: You have but, to. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think if they can click together, like they, they did late towards the end of the year before yeah. they got into the playoffs, you know, missing our, 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 our boy, Shea Weber is a big, big piece. Mm-hmm. I think we've kind of, you know, helped out there a bit, but um, we still have our big boys on defense. So I, I think we could, I, I, I think we could, look like we did this year to be honest with you if if we, we can gel together quicker, you know. So losing Dan uh Dano, I, I know a lot of people, you know, but he wasn't there all season. He kind of came towards the end of the season. He was he, he you know and it, it clicked for everyone, you know. So yeah uh, I think we're missing a few little parts. If if Berserma could fix that before season starts, I think we'll do okay this year again.
4: I think it seems to be the general consensus, you know, that okay we lost Dano but we could replace, and we had like on this show, we've talked in depth about the 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 middle line, and and you know the fact that Jake Evans might get a bigger role, and also like the additions of like Cedric Paquette, Mathieu Peiro, you know, all on and all that jazz. And there was only one person on on our panel who said that the Habs will not make the playoffs. But you know, nine out of ten say, oh yeah, we're we're at least gonna make the second, maybe even the third round, and then we'll see from there. As long as we totally agree with that. Totally. As long as we beat the Leafs, right? <laughs> we, the beating the Leafs is
1: our Stanley Cup every year. So we beat them, them into our Stanley Cup. I'm happy with that.
4: Outstanding. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Kevin Reason, who uh, was very, very generous at this time. Kevin, thank you so much for talking to us. I mean, I'm very excited to see you on Saturday. I will definitely, you know, come and say hi with my wife and child. And I'm hoping a lot of people will will, uh, will come up to this, to this walk and... The best of luck to you, and of course, you know, shout out to Stephen and Bethany, and of course, Liam. Obviously, best luck to everyone.
1: Yeah, and thank you so much, Patrick, for having us. You know, what you do is so huge. If we could just connect with one person after this, this makes it huge. So I appreciate you having
4: me, and can't wait to see you Saturday. My absolute pleasure, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you. And once again, thank you so much to uh, Mr. Kevin Reason for this. Uh, your time was so generous, sir, and I know you have been so busy uh, going on the radio as well for the um, for the radiothon that was going on uh, on Thursday. And you know more power to you and also shout out to steven liam and bethany you guys are absolute middle warriors like we like to say also a quick note that uh, we have um, mentioned that the walk is scheduled for uh, saturday august 28th the event has been pushed back because of the inclement weather that we're having here on the east coast there is um, thunderstorm warnings there is a tornado warning actually that just appeared Uh, and also just it's going to be a a big mess so you know what everyone decided to just push it back so we will be updating our facebook page uh to let you to to let you guys know but again um you know as you've heard on the segment you know feel free to to send kevin a a message of support or you could donate directly to the liam foundation or the montreal children's hospital And now it's time for On This Day in Habs History with Joshua Rosa. Take it away, sir.
3: On this day in Habs History.
5: On this day, August 26th, year of our Lord, 1961, hockey's Mecca, the Hockey Hall of Fame opened its doors at the Canadian National Exhibition where it would stay stay until it was relocated, still in Toronto in 1993. As part of the celebration, the Hall of Fame inducted six new members, including one man, Joseph Richard, perhaps best known by his middle name Maurice, or his nickname, The Rocket. He was the first player to score 50 goals in 50 games and retired with the most NHL goals to his name at the time with 554. Just five years and one day later, the Hockey Hall of Fame inducted the class of 1966, and a second Joseph was inducted, one Joseph Blake, also better known by his nickname Toe Blake. In 1946, Blake was the first Canadian to win the Lady Bidding Trophy while committing just one minor minor penalty the whole year, a feat matched only by fellow Hab Mats Naslund. Blake was inducted with linemate Elmer Lack, who won the very first Art Ross Trophy in 1948? And played played his entire career in Montreal after being passed up by the Toronto Maple Leafs for being too small. Toe Blake and Elmer Lach teamed up to form the Punch Line, along with the Rocket or Easter Shard. Exactly one decade after the Hall of Fame opened its doors, Bobby Orr would sign a behemoth five-year. $200,000 per year contract, making it the first NHL contract worth $1 million. Which Montreal Canadian was the first to sign a million-dollar contract? Well, astute listeners might just recognize this name from last week's edition. It's Guy Lafleur. In 1973, Lafleur signed a 10-year contract with the Canadians worth $1 million total. This was despite the fact that the Quebec Nordiques offered him the same amount over a five year period, which he considered after his signing in Montreal. But as we all know, he turned them down.
4: Absolutely incredible that we're talking once again about Lafleur in back to back weeks, right? That's pretty, pretty cool. Josh, I'm going to ask you the question, and I know you know the answer to this. Do you remember who the first Montreal Canadian was to have an annual salary of $1 million.
5: The name might sound familiar if you're keeping up with recent Montreal signings. It's not David Savard, but it's Denis Savard.
4: That's correct. (laughs) There you go, Denis Savard, who, of course, we all know for his heroics in the 92-93 season when he won our last Stanley Cup all those aeons ago. And now ladies and gentlemen it's time to talk prospects ahl echl and anything underneath scott cowan sebastian high our prospect heroes
3: the prospect heroes scott and sebastian on puck and roll
4: Scott and Sebastian, welcome to the show, guys. How's it going, Patrick? Sebastian, we're going to start with you. Now, I believe you still have a list of to uh, complete. You've uh, read it uh, 50 times. you checked it 40 times. I think your due diligence is even more impressive than Santa Claus himself. <laughs> we, and, of course, we're talking about uh, the uh, latest uh, draft picks for the Montreal Canadiens. So let's go ahead and complete this list, Sebastian. What do you got for us this week?
2: Well, like the, the three players that I have uh, notes written up for, I'm not sure if I'm going to get to all of them. Uh, but it's the three defensemen that the Habs picked uh, back to back to back in the middle of the draft. Uh, those would be uh, Dmitry Kostenko, William Trudeau, and Daniil Sobolev. Uh, these are three very different defensemen. They have very different strengths. We have one offensive defenseman, one two-way defenseman, one defensive defenseman. And um, interestingly, well, interestingly, oh,
4: yeah, I'm so sorry. Interestingly, one of these picks
2: is considered a Russian football player, according to Google. Kostenko <laughs> is indeed also a Russian football player, <laughs> uh, which is wonderful. Like a 28-year-old Russian football player who the Habs just needed. You, you need a football playing defenseman, right?
4: Um, he
6: strength. feet, strength. Uh, feet of you strength. You need that massive no, not- frame.
4: The only the only thing though, I'm just afraid of all the penalties for embellishment he might take, but that's a whole other story. I'm sorry too. Whoa, uh, whoa. yeah, football, yeah.
2: not soccer. <laughs> <laughs> I love all three sports though, so it's like, it's kind of like shooting myself in the foot here, but yeah,
4: I'm sorry, Sebastian. So- Please continue.
2: <laughs> so speaking of the football playing Kostenko, um, this is probably the, the player of the three that I'm least enamored with in terms of like the 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 draft pick. Um, so, he was drafted really for his offense and specifically for his goal scoring, which is a bit of an interesting thing to say, considering he only scored two goals last season, uh, split between the MHL, which is the Russian equivalent of like the CHLs, so like OHL, QMJHL, all that. Uh, so, it's he the also played.
6: CHLs, ECHL in a sense, too, if you want to do technical. Also, it, it's kind of both, but it, yeah, it's also exactly. used as, as
2: a junior league. It's like. Uh, it's not it's not not a one to one comparison, mm-hmm. uh, but he played most of his games in the VHL, uh, which is the equivalent of the AHL. So it's, it's real professional hockey. Um, it's, it's painful to watch. Like there isn't much of a system. Uh, it's just like you play and doesn't matter if it's cohesive in any way. Uh, but it's so Cercocenco... almost like a beer... so you're telling me the VHL is essentially a beer league. With no coaching,
6: basically, but <laughs> talented players. So it's, it's strange have, to have the KHL doesn't have the best reputation for its on ice uh, product. How to say it, its on actions and the VHL just kind of is the trickle down effect from that. So yeah. yeah. But yeah. you mentioned also that the, that he was
4: part. He's also part of the well, he did. Stands at the MHL, which is a league that um,
2: Alexander Romanov actually played for. As well, <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So it's again like like players coming from Russia. Basically, any player you draft. That even plays in the KHL has spent time in both the VHL and the MHL. Like, you see, like, a ton of movement, right? Um, So, Kostenko is an offensive defenseman. Uh, He has a really booming shot, but, like, think about, like, Ben Sherratt in the offensive zone of, like, only ever shooting. Like, every time he gets the puck at the blue line, he shoots, and it's frustrating because, like, you see an open player, like, an actual goal scorer, and he just doesn't pass which is kind of the same thing with with Kostenko. And I watched him a little bit before the draft because I was watching a player I adored, uh, which was uh, Fyodor Svechkov. And in terms of point tallies, Kostenko and Svechkov are pretty similar, both in the VHL and the MHL. But at the same time, I didn't love the pick because like, Kostenko is an adventurer in the defensive zone. He um, never has his stick on the ice. He doesn't have like smart habits he's not very aware of his surroundings he misses reads constantly it's pretty frustrating to watch him he does have a penchant for like a very like um like highlight real play every once in a while so like you see some people comparing him to norlander which i disagree most,
6: with most canadian fans will be aware of kustenko because he has appeared in youtube at times and highlight reel exactly videos
4: and stuff like that so
5: but is but there someone
6: at, is there someone in history however that you you
4: can maybe compare it to because I don't know. You're telling me a guy who's shooting constantly, who's a defensive liability. I'm going, I'm going old school here. I'm thinking guys like ally or Frady, for example.
6: You know, I'd or, say I'd say he's more like Gaston Gingras in that his shot is 50-50 yeah, 50 50, Whether it'll hit the net or whether it'll hit the boards, but he still has that big booming release at the end of the day. It's,
2: yeah, we're, it's a no, big we're, booming we're, release, yeah. but he's also not a very good skater. <sighs> he lacks some, some like hockey iq which is why it's not a swing i would have taken but it's like a it's a boom or bust selection in that the chance of it like booming are small but i think there's a better chance of him being a top four guy than the bottom than than like a like (laughs) top six guy
4: well then sebastian one last thing before we move on to to the next prospect then if you're telling me that you know you seem a little reluctant about you know giving this guy any praise so to speak he has been picked in the third round so is he just a product of the, what we like to call the COVID draft where, you know, everyone kind of, but like, you know, cho- chose blindly after the, after the first round or, I mean, you he know he what, he, or, or maybe he the, the I'm season. guessing
2: the, I'm guessing the scouts saw something for him to be. yes Okay. So, so, so the reason for him being drafted so high, you, you do have these highlight real plays. You do have this big shot and you see Montreal, especially with like losing Shea Weber, perhaps long-term. This is something I saw in the draft. Like drafting Mayu, for instance, is wanting a defenseman who can shoot, right? And like, actually shoot. I mean, like Kasenga isn't a big guy; he's six foot one sixty eight. Um, he's also really old for his draft class. He's, he's almost eligible for last draft. Yeah, uh, 20, but yeah. he also he has he has flashes, right? It's just they're so inconsistent. So if you're if you're drafting, I'm like, okay, I see these great flashes, and I'm gonna. Like we're gonna to try to make these like more common. Then sure, he's also a right shot defenseman. And after losing Kale uh, Flurry, and, and Noah Julson, and Shea Weber, you want to reinforce that right side of defense because, before, like, apart from like this draft class, the only right defense prospect that Montreal had was Josh Brook. So there, there are reasons
6: it's just not a swing I would take taken. All right, I think a fun up. comparison to make really quick with Kostenko is if for the defense of All Rocket is uh, Nikita Zhevlov who played for the Rocket as Latvian-born forward. Mm, yeah. Jeff Plov was an on-ice liability a lot, but he also gave Rocket fans those highlight reel plays that put fans in their seats when he did produce. And I think for Canadians fans, I think it's fair to say that Kostenko could fit that similar bill, as he is a player who has found himself on highlight reels more often than not. Yeah, that's fair.
4: Sebastian, next guy on the list.
2: Uh, we get Trudeau. So this is a really fun one. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a wholesome story. So Trudeau wasn't on any draft lists, even like in like November so he really skyrocketed up rankings this season. So like, um, he didn't make the top 350 of central scouting for North America in like September, but he made, he, I think he was like 120th or something, uh, in December. So it really was just this season. And, uh, he was playing on a really stacked Charlotte Islanders team. Um, and he kind of played second fiddle behind, um, ah, a player who was picked last season, uh, uh, Cormier, yeah, Lucas and Cormier. yeah, exactly. And uh, while Cormier was taking on the power play, Trudeau was the penalty killing stable. He he's he's basically very he's decent at everything, but he kind of lacks that standout skill. So I think it's a pretty safe bet that he's going to make the NHL at some point. I just maybe maybe he can be a really solid like fifth defenseman, sixth defenseman. But like he's he's a smart player. Like he's really smart in the, in the D zone. I was
4: actually just about to interject and say that exactly that. I think what was impressive about the, the the Trudeau pick was the fact that well, first of all, everyone was um, wowed at the fact that he has a really high hockey IQ. You know, he um, his skills are definitely there. But again, this is another defenseman where you know he's got cement in his skates and he just you know he doesn't move. However, again. NHL Central Scouting ranked him number 68.
2: Yeah. He's, so, he, he's a good player. He yeah. also put up 31 points in 40 games for the Charlotte Islanders. He's also a bit older for the draft class, but the development curve is really, really promising, right? Like, if you look at a player, like, you, you much rather draft a player who uh, was on no one's list a year ago but on everyone's list now versus someone that, like, kind of dropped off this last season because it shows there might not seem to be too much upside right now, but that upside could like could still come into play, right? You, like he, he might gain a standout out ability with time. And I think if he does gain a standout, standout ability, it will be his defensive play. He's really aggressive defensively. He, he engages uh, like on the rush. He, um, he can suffocate play really well. He's a really good player that like, like in like say 10 years, if you have him on your third pairing and he's the guy that like, you want to help a younger defenseman come into the league with, right. Of like trying to like kind of protect the younger player. Like if, if Trudeau was like, or like 10 years older and like an established like okay NHL player, I would, I would want to play Romanov or Norlander with him because he has that like steadying capability of just calming things down um he's not a great skater but he is pretty effective in transition like in getting the puck out of the zone because he's smart he knows what kind of lanes to choose and like how to like shift his weight uh to just manipulate the uh, opposing players so it's a it's a pick i actually quite appreciated because it's homegrown underdog it's fun
4: it's
2: yeah, I, I think
6: i'll let you go I'm so No, go ahead, Scott. Go, go ahead. I just want to make a quick point about the Islanders. That's another thing to mention that's pretty interesting with uh, Trudeau is that he's proven that he plays really well when he's given really high offensive players to play with. The Islanders last season were one of the uh, Q&JHL's best offensive teams, if not the league's best offensive team, with Cedric who who is a current Laval Rocket player, winning the q top scorer award. Thomas Casey finishing second on team scoring of 74 points over 38 games. That is had a high-powered offense. So I definitely think that Trudeau can have offensive upside if he's put with the right people. I was actually going to say uh, uh, something along those
4: lines, Scott, and I appreciate I appreciate the comment. The difference with me, though, is I don't have stats on top of my head like you guys do. <laughs> I was going to make a, a soft comparison. I have notes. Oh, fine. I came unprepared. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs>
4: I actually, um, because I was thinking about, you know, his style and everything and how he fits in, and I really appreciate the comment about how he fits well with an offensive player. The Canadians are actually the, the, the defensive core is was kind well, was because you now Weber is gone, the whole uh situation has shifted a bit. Yet Sherratt with Weber, you know, a defensive minded, def- uh, you know, defenseman with you know someone who was more inclined to go offensively. Same thing with Edmondson and Petrie, it was kind of like that same you know connection and everything. So, you don't you never know, maybe he can you know make it, and it would be. Uh, an absolutely amazing story, Sebastian. We're gonna have to keep the rest of the picks for next week because we have a lot more to talk about. I know you're very disappointed, but you know we, you know, <laughs> I'm sure Scott is like getting annoyed that you're hogging all the uh, the all the spotlight here, and you guys must have a shared segment. <laughs> Scott, um, before we talk about the uh, Lyon Le Trois Rivieres, uh, we know there's a couple of signatures that you know that stood out that you want to talk about. Uh, there is one player in particular that you you've been pretty high about because you're also a a, um, a big sap for you know like successful stories and come and underdogs and everything. I mean we all love Rocky. Let's be honest here.
6: Olivier Archambault. This is a guy you want to talk about. Go ahead. I've been following Archambault on and off since 2016, which might shock a lot of people, considering most people barely know who this guy is. But when I first got into writing hockey, he was one of the first guys I kind of picked up on coming out of the ECHL. I was following Trevor Gillies when he was playing at the South Carolina Stingrays because I was a big fan of him. He was a former NHL enforcer. And Archambault was one of the top scorers on that team in his final season in that league. And ever since then, I've kind of just been following him on and off, seeing where he's gone. And then things kind of came full circle this past offseason when he signed with the Canadiens organization in a fashion as he signed a one-year deal with the Trois-Rivières-Lyon. If you want to make a fair comparison here, Archambault is definitely an Alex Belzil type, not really in terms of his playing style, but more so in terms of his career path. Archambault has been all over the map to get to where he is right now, but I think he'll finally have that stability that he really just has never really found at the professional level in Trois-Rivières, with a new team and a new market, new fan base, new everything pretty much. Archambault went on through for all of 2020-21. He, he contemplated some overseas options. There were some good articles written about that in La Presse which talked about him considering going overseas, but ultimately he decided to stay in North America once more. And he's actually a point per game player in 2020 at the Island Americans. But what most people remember him for is two things. One is that he was a former uh, draft pick of the Canadians, a fifth round pick in... 2000, oh, sorry, a forefront pick in 2011. And most Canadian fans will know him because he's typically brought up in the conversation of players who just, of homegrown picks that just didn't work out. Now, while that did, that, while well, now, while that's exactly what happened, as Archimbault's entire time with the Canadian organization amounted to 10 games with the Hamilton Bulldogs, I still think he's a super talented player. And there was a brief time where he actually managed to crack the AHL full time for at least half a season. When the Syracuse Crunch were faced with a a number of injuries, he was given a shot off a PTO and posted 18 uh, points over 29 games. He was a very talented offensive player, scored some big goals for them, and was signed to a one-year AHL deal. While injuries, of course, led to him eventually being back in the ECHL. I definitely think he's a really, really interesting pickup for the 12 Riviera Leon. One of the main things to note about Archambault for people who are interested in me looking into him come next season is that he's got NHL hands. That's just my own opinion. I know it's kind of a bold statement to make. I think Archambault's hands are definitely that of an NHL player, and he's definitely. There was some goals that he scored during his time with the Strikas Crunch that were highlight reel and definitely worthy of NHL ice. And I think when he is healthy and when he's got everything together, he's one of the best players in the ACHL. And I definitely think he will be the franchise player for the Trois-Rivières-Léon at first glance.
4: Which is not only amazing on a marketing standpoint, of course, you know, you're having a homegrown guy in Trois-Rivières, you know, being, you know, the face of the franchise and, and, and whatnot. But I mean, you know, this is, it's an important part of his career being 28 years old you know and i'm sure that he's hoping to at least be able to to get a call up and play for the rocket before the before the end of the end of the year and you you're absolutely right i mean from the from the small glimpses that we've seen from him i mean let's be honest you don't get you don't get drafted into the into the nhl you know just because you look good you know, like, or even the, or even on paper for that matter. Like, they, obviously, there were scouts that were looking at him and and whatnot. So I know I'm not gonna mock you for that for saying that he has NHL-ready hands. But on the topic of Trois-Rivières, we're, we're starting to see the roster take ship a little bit. There's, we're still waiting for the official roster to even come out, for that matter. But you've been following them a little bit, and you, you, were, me- you were mentioning to me off-air that there was a few players that kind of stood out, one of them being Archambault. But there's a couple of other players that you think might actually make an impact with uh, the Lyon this year.
6: I really liked what the what the year old Lyon and specifically GM Marc-Andre Bergeron, a former Hab might I add, did with the roster in the offseason. They didn't make that many free agency additions, but the ones they made were really interesting and they definitely will contribute to the team's success down the line. One of the main ones that's really important is that their defense is rock solid, and it definitely is an ECHL defense in a lot of ways. Big, tough guys who can play big minutes, not exactly talented offensively, but they're big defensive players who can also get a fight in and bring the fans to their feet when they want to. One of the main ones I'm going to bring up, or sorry, the two main ones I'm going to bring up is Maitre Gagnon, who is, again, a former member of the Canadians organization. As the St. John's Icecaps signed into a one-year deal in 2016-17, he never wound up playing for them as David Brohl kind of took his role as the team's enforcer, but he's bounced around here there and he managed to find a full time role in the ECHL last season with the Wichita Thunder, where he put up 14 points over 66 games. Leading on from that, the player who I think will be the captain of the 12 year On come next year is Matthew Broder, a 31 year old defenseman, former third round pick of the Phoenix Coyotes, who has had one heck of a journeyman career and was actually a full time player in the AHL for the, for the better part of six seasons. This past season, he actually managed to win the Kelly Cup title with the Fort Wayne Comets and he's bounced around here and there, played in the LNH a little bit, but he's a big, tough, physical defenseman and a, and a proven leader on on and off the ice. I think one of the best things to at a lot of Canadians for let a lot of fans of the Canadians organization will be realizing is that ECHL hockey always brings really, really great stories with it and players who have really, really interesting backstories and backgrounds and uh, to bring a reference to something that me and Sebastian were talking about a bit on and off during this podcast, the trouble de year, we'll have a lot of Trevor Job like players, a lot of guys who are just kind of bounced around the league here and there. Once again, to throw my obscure reference in for the day. And <laughs> I just think they'll have a lot of interesting guys to come in and, step up. And I definitely think they'll have a chance at doing what the Newfoundland Growlers did, which was winning a Kelly Cup in their first season. Well, I don't think they're quite near that just yet, I do think they're a playoff-ready team with the right uh, with the right players and with the right system. And I think Jean-Marc andre Bergeron has done a fantastic job so far with Leo.
4: And for the final minute of this uh, of this segment, I'm just going to uh, put this out there, and I'm sure both of you will, will appreciate this kind of news. And Scott, you were dead on when saying that the ECHL is so full of these you know, underdog stories, so so to speak, you know, that people just fighting tooth and nail to, to, to be able to continue their dream of playing hockey. Uh, the um, Toilet organization actually posted um, a tweet uh, two days ago, a couple of days ago, as a matter of fact, um, inviting people to a tryout camp between September the 12th and September the 14th. Now, this uh, tryout camp is, is mostly going to be invites from the U Sport League, the North American Hockey League, uh, the Quebec junior major. Uh, but there's also going to be some people that, you know, can come in from Europe and whatnot. So, I mean, I think you guys would also like, I think you guys appreciate this kind of, of invite, because it's not something that we see that often anymore,
6: having these open tryouts, am I correct? Well, the thing is, most people are probably going to put it to the side that like, oh, these are just players who they're just going to throw and get a shot to and say, there's the door we'll see you later. But there's actually been a lot of cases. Well, there's been a couple of cases at least of guys who were, from these kind of uh, situations or systems like U-Sports and the MAH and stuff like that who have gone to have really good careers. A guy I've talked about on and off on this podcast and in a few pieces I wrote is Anthony Beauregard and he played for the Concordia University for two seasons, won the U-Sports Player of the Year in 2017-18 and was the ECHL MVP last season so I think there's definitely a point to be made that these guys aren't just players that can be brushed to the side a lot of them have really high upside and speaking of Concordia once again Laval even has like a Concordia contracted player right now in defenseman Carl Neal so I definitely think there's a lot to be excited about for these guys and it'll be an interesting thing to see
4: yeah absolutely i mean we're talking about like like, like i said it's it's not only just players that are are trying to continue you know and then just to hold on for this uh you know hold on the uh, the dream so to speak i mean trois rivières has been brought in so the canadians can use a three-tier system for their prospects a lot like what baseball does with the AAA and AA teams. That baseball goes even further. They got single A and single A ball, long winter leagues, all that kind of stuff. But the the basics of it is that this new generation of hockey is going to be, you know, you got the ECHL, which is the farm team for the AHL, which is the farm team for the NHL. And we've seen it before. There are ECHL players that made it to the NHL, and has actually had successful careers. Right, Sebastian.
2: Yeah, I mean, like David Desharnais would be the poster child for that, right? Like, there you go. he was the Habs' number one centerman when they went on a almost Stanley Cup final run that was taken out by Chris Kreider. Uh, yeah, no comment. <laughs> but, <problem. laughs> but but the fact that a player that that like barely made the ECHL was Montreal's number one centerman, like he shouldn't have been Montreal's number one centerman. He would he would been a great second line center, but he shouldn't not have been in that first center role. At the same time. With him in that spot, Montreal went really far in the playoffs, which is awesome.
6: Leading on from that, you have Alex Belfour, who was the Rockets' first-line center and came from a, probably an even more difficult background than David Dernay, if you can believe that. Having been cut at pretty much every single professional level he played at, going all the way back to Double C in a small in the small town of saint Alois, Quebec, which had a population of less than 250 people. So yeah, I mean the ECHL is a league that a lot of people will brush to the side, but as they're making a push to be more of a development league, these guys are still managing to slip through the cracks here and there. And who knows? Maybe we'll find another one coming uh, into the NHL sooner than later.
4: What you know, we're going to extend this segment just a little bit longer. I mean, I know I said it was like a final 60 seconds earlier. Yeah, but just there a little was, bit of
2: recent news, <laughs>
4: a little bit of recent news, exactly. It was just kind of dropped on our lap. Um, Sebastian, you want to talk about Eve Gascon?
2: Yeah, so this is just this awesome storyline, uh, coming out of the Gatineau uh, Olympics uh, training camp. And uh, so, Eve Gascon is a goaltender who spent uh, the last two seasons playing uh, AAA in the QM AAA League. and Which is midget right AAA, now, yeah. Which is midget AAA. And she is now one of the final three goaltenders left in camp for the New Olympics. So two goalies have already been cut, one of whom was cut today. So she's one of the final ones left. And uh, last season... Uh, she played in twenty five games and posted an eight nine three safe percentage, which doesn't sound amazing on the surface. But her backup played twenty games, so only five less than she played in, and uh, he would. His name is Edouard Goutier, uh, and he posted in eight sixty six, so almost three full percentage points lower than hers. Uh, which goes to show that she was by far the best goalie on her team and is now getting a real shot at at the. QMJHL, which would be awesome because i'm going to study in ottawa at carlton and i am so going to watch some get get to new games and would be even more enamored to do so if she is starting with some of them
6: you got to think about it with the nhl being so far removed from the memory realms of the past seeing this kind of stuff come through is pretty freaking cool to see honestly and i'm really looking forward to it
4: and the worst case scenario forget for Gasco is that if she doesn't make the team well you know what she already has an agreement to play for the university of minnesota duluth so, uh, exactly. so, you know, regardless, she's going to be playing some high profile hockey. So congratulations to her. Scott, Sebastian, thank you so much for the segment, guys.
6: Hey! Da-da-da-da. Hey!
4: And now it's time for the guest of the show. It is my absolute pleasure to present this, uh, pre-recorded interview, uh, featuring myself, Scott and Sebastian, once again with Anthony DeMarco, who is an NHL correspondent for the fourth period. Anthony had a lot to say. Anthony is also a Flyers fan. So hold on to your seats, ladies and gentlemen, because he's got a lot, he's got a lot of beef with Montreal. But, you know, you know, he tries to be objective, but you're going to see. He, he's still a very, very well-informed character. So enjoy this next uh, interview with Anthony DeMarco from the fourth period. Now, life is full of enigmas or mysteries, if you will. One of sport's greatest enigmas is the one of partisanship. The logic dictates that you grew up in a city and you cheer for the team playing in that city or the one closest to you. If you live in Montreal, you cheer for the Canadians. If you live in San Francisco, chances are you are going to cheer for the 49ers and so forth. However, in some instances, there is always that one person in your life that kind of stands out because where his or her allegiance lies friend or family member who who although lives in Winnipeg for example is a San Jose Sharks fan the reason behind it is never clear but you know sometimes they're just bandwagoners our next special guest is definitely not a bandwagoner however but although he is a Montrealer he happens to be a Flyers fan of all things but however it is with great pleasure along with Scott and Sebastian to introduce to you from the fourth period Mr. Anthony DeMarco welcome sir
7: Glad to be here, man. And yeah, definitely crossing enemy lines today, but uh, (laughs) I'm looking forward to doing this.
4: And once again, like I mentioned, uh, Scott Cowan and Sebastian High are going to be part of this panel. Welcome to you gentlemen as well. As Anthony mentioned, he is an NHL correspondent at the fourth period, uh, has already started to build his reputation as a reputable insider for the Philadelphia Flyers. But before we get into his work, and we're going to go ahead and address the elephant in the room, so to speak. So Anthony... Why the Flyers, man? I mean, you're in Montreal.
7: Um, look, I uh, grew up as a Flyers fan. My dad was a big part of that. And, you know, being 27 years old, I really only truly follow started following hockey as like a, a diehard, let's say, fan when I was, I would say, about 11, 12 years old. So that was right after the, the first lockout. And that was like a really fun time to be a Flyers fan. You know, they brought in guys like Danny Briere and Kimo Team in Scott Hartnell, and then the guys from their own system had come up the ranks like Jeff Carter and Mike Richards. Shortly thereafter, they went to the Stanley Cup final in
3: 2010. But
7: then slowly but surely, as I got into my twenties, my my love for being a fan kind of transitioned into being a, a, I guess you could say more of a journalist and a and a an objective type of watcher and that's how i transitioned into working for the fourth period i started off as the flyers correspondent and now i'm the nhl correspondent so while i guess at heart i'm technically still a fan of the flyers i've really kind of blossomed into just like an objective journalist and that's what i really strive to be when i cover the sport and even though maybe 20 years ago i would have despised the habs now i look at them in the most objective kind of microscope i can
4: well let's talk a little bit about your you know journalistic career in the media world especially it's really really hard to get into anything uh whether it's written or even you know starting a podcast is you know although there's the ease of access it's still you know hard to actually make it like you know some sort of career out of it so maybe how about you tell us a little bit how how did you get into the media world and Just tell us, tell the world, I mean, how did you make your way uh, your way to work alongside someone like Dave Pagnota at uh, the fourth period?
7: Well, you know, much like a lot of us uh, following high school, I went to Sejep and I attended John Abbott. I graduated in 2013 in um, in call media arts specifically and uh i got to concordia and i was in journalism and i wasn't exactly the most responsible 20 year old there ever was and i didn't last a whole lot long there and uh, i stopped going to school in 2014 stopped pursuing it and then you know i had my my actual job my day job but on the side i would say for just about three years i would write just randomly i used to write for this uh website called uh Broad Street Hockey, which is a division of SB Nation, but not like as an actual employee, they just had the, the thing called like fan posts. Yeah. Um, I used to write on this other website that ceases to exist now called the Crunch Picks, and then in the summer of 2017, I just took a shot in the dark and I um I DM'd uh, Dennis Bernstein, who is the senior writer and Los Angeles uh, Kings correspondent and insider for the fourth period and uh, he read my work, gave me a crack, and uh, the rest is history. It's been just about four years now that I write for the fourth period. Like I said, start started out as a Flyers correspondent. Now I've since become the NHL correspondent. Uh, I have a podcast that covers the Flyers on the Brotherly Pod platform. Um, I'm, I would say I'm a Casual contributor on Sears XMIHL Network Radio. I've been on a on TSN 690, on a Sportsnet 1050 in Toronto, or is it 1050? No, that's TSN. I forgot the actual number that sports is. But <laughs> no 590 the fan. That's it. There that's you
4: go, it. yeah. <laughs> 590
7: the fan. <laughs> so look, it's been like a slow methodical process, that's for sure. And there still is a lot of work for me to go. I'm not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, but it's been a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to the future.
6: Uh, I was going to ask you, a lot has changed, obviously, between the Canadians and Flyers rivalry over the years. And I think we definitely got a glimpse of how things have kind of developed in the last time these teams met in the second round of the playoffs during the bubble and sort of how the Flyers compare to the Canadians. How do you think they stand nowadays in terms of being a rivalry between two teams considering the Flyers are more based on depth, something that the Canadians definitely used a lot as they rolled their way to the Stanley Cup final this past uh, playoffs?
7: Well, you know, it's crazy, right? Because if you go historically, there is a long list of, you know, big moments. You know, a lot of people will tell you for those who watch in the 1970s that the Canadians were the ones who kind of effectively ended the Broad Street Bullies. When Larry Robinson crushed Gary Dorenhofer on the boards and then pounded uh, Dave Schultz's face in, or then you have the infamous uh, brawl before the game even started in the playoffs. And then you get more modern times and the point, Scott, you know the Flyers and the Habs have played three times in the playoffs since uh, the two thousand financial lockout. I will say the Flyers have won all three of those series but so just a little shot, but but, <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right, Scott. You know, the Canadians have always kind of had that identity of depth, do it by committee, good two way guys. It's been a long, long time. And maybe Cole Caulfield and Suzuki will have something to say about it, but it has been a long, long time since the Canadians had that standout star, and I think that maybe in the earlier series of the Flyers and the Canadians, since the lockout, the Flyers had those types of stars. Like Danny Briere. in between the lockouts was one of the best playoff performers of that generation. You had guys like Mike Richards, you know, that famous goal where he collides with Halak and Hammerlick at the blue line. You know, they had Chris Pronger for a short cup of coffee. You know, the Canadians, especially during that era, when you were kind of anchored by the likes of Mark Streit and Markov on the blue line, and Koivu and Kovalev, and then later on to kind of Camilleri and Gomez and Gianta. Nowadays, I think there are more parallels between the two because, you know, Giroux isn't a star anymore. Jake Voracek has been traded. Sean Couturier, is he a star or is he just a very, very good number one center kind of in the realm of Ryan O'Reilly? And now you look at the Flyers, and yeah, they are kind of more of a blue-collar, north-south team, win by committee, and that's indicative of the way that they're coached by former Canadian head coach Alain Vigneault. So I think that over the years, the gap between the two teams' identities have definitely shrunk in that
2: regard. So uh, one of the connections I have made in in recent years between the Habs and the Flyers was actually in the 2019 draft, when... Uh, the Flyers went up to make the draft pick uh, and said from the US NTDP, we are proud to select Cam York. And there's this famous video that's been shared a bunch on Twitter of like a Flyers fan bar and like their reaction to the pick. And it's spectacular to watch, right? It's like this huge uproar celebration They hear the US NTDP knowing, we got Cole Caulfield. And then Cam York, everyone's like, no! And uh, just wanted, I just want to like, ask me your insight and like your opinion of like how that day went because us Habs fans were like so over the moon of seeing Caulfield drop and then having us pick him like it was basically it was almost across the board despite the height despite everything almost every single Habs fan was absolutely over the moon of getting this generational goal scorer
7: yeah, no, for sure. And the Flyers have been long-starved for a Peter sniper like Cole Caulfield. So when Chuck Fletcher passed on him, it was really a shock. And to this day, you still see the debate amongst the Flyers fans complaining about it, and rightfully so. You know, Cam York has played, what, two games in the NHL, and Cole Caulfield was arguably the best forward for the Canadiens in their final run. That being said... You know, I asked general manager, assistant general manager, rather, Brent Flair about this a couple months back when I spoke to him. And, you know, obviously it's hard to defend passing on that pick when Cam York has yet to really establish himself in the NHL. But the way he explained it to me is that they looked at their organizational depth, right? And for a long time, the Flyers' biggest or best position rather, has been their right wing. And now Voracek has since been traded, but you look at guys who play that right side, Travis Konechny, Wade Allison, Cam Atkinson, Nikolai Kubel those are their four right wings in the here and now. Then you look in their system, they have Bobby Brink,
4: all right, so we had a little bit of technical difficulties. Anthony lost connections, so you might hear a, a different quality of voice, so don't worry. It's not because he has one of those modified voice boxes or something. So, uh, Anthony, uh, before we got cut off, you were talking about Bobby Brink and the rest of the prospect on the Flyers roster.
7: Yeah, I'm really making a good first impression, eh, guys? But uh, anyway, yeah, I'll get Spectacular, back Spectacular,
3: dude.
7: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll get back on track. So all this to say the Flyers have a lot of organizational depth At that right wing position. Now, that being said, quote unquote, depth means a whole lot of nothing if they don't succeed at the NHL level. And that's what what's happening with Cole Caulfield. But in terms of let's say a guy like Cam York, a left shot defenseman still in an entry level contract. And now you see the Flyers really fast tracking to a cap crunch on that blue line having a defenseman still in an ELC who could maybe theoretically step into a second or third third pair role between now and next season is very beneficial. You know, the Flyers, I think Ivan Provarov is going to be their number one guy for a long time. They just acquired Ryan Ellis. He's going to be alongside Provarov on that top pair. But a guy like Travis Sanheim, who just got a two-year contract extension, he may become a cap casualty sooner rather than later. A guy like, Keith Yandel, you know, brought in on a one-year $850,000 deal. You have to think that event that, you know, after this season, he won't be back. So while in the short term, it's kind of understandable why a lot of Flyers fans would be very, very upset that they did pass on a guy like Cole Caulfield, who has already had so much success at the NHL level at such a young age. I think that in due time, it will pay off a lot that the Flyers elected to go with a guy like Ken York based on their organizational depth at each respective positions.
4: I think one of the, um, the biggest standouts on the, um, on the Flyers roster is obviously, obviously, you know, if you look at the defensive squad, uh, the top six is going most, unless, you know, injury, barring any injury and whatnot, the top six is going to look like Justin Braun, Ryan Ellis, Ivan Provorov, Rasmus Ristolainen, Travis Zaheim and Keith Yano. I mean, that's nothing to, to, to spit on. I mean, that's obviously there's there's going to be a lot like, you know, to try to generate a lot more offense, um, you know, from the back end. But now the question at the same time is going to be between the pipes. And here's something that uh, our own Joshua Rosa asked me to ask you directly, Anthony, uh, Carter Hart. I mean, first of all, I mean, I know, I He's going to have a different backup with Martin Jones, you know, who's obviously going to be pushing and putting some pressure on him to actually get more starts. But what happened with Carter Hart last year? And do you think he's actually going to have a bounce back season with the type of blue line squad that he has in front of him?
7: Well, look, there's no secret. The Flyers had almost historically bad goaltending last year. Like even if you go by, you know, a lot of advanced metrics that kind of account for bad defense Carter Hart was really, really bad. But you also have to take into consideration some intangibles, you know, a young goalie playing in, you know, on a team that had a lot of problems behind the scenes, a lot of, you know, locker room issues, for lack of better words. Um, You know, living on your own. He was, what, 21 years old last year, 22. Living on your own in Philadelphia, you know, he's from Western Canada And, you know, you're basically going from the rink to your apartment, the rink to your apartment. And then on the flip side, to your point, the defense was just an absolute tire fire last year for the Flyers. And he had no backup. Like, you know, if you asked me two weeks into the season who the Flyers MVPs were, I would have said it was Carter Hart and then backup goaltender Brian Elliott. But as the season went on and the defense continued to deteriorate, as did the goalies, I think Carter Hart is going to be fine. You know, we've seen young goaltenders have hiccups so many times in their careers. Mark Andre Fleury, Carey Price, like it isn't a foreign concept that development doesn't stay linear specifically for goaltenders. Now, that being said, this is a very, very important year for Carter Hart. You know, they bring in a guy like Martin Jones who is an upgrade on Mar- on Brian Elliott just in terms of the fact that he probably is more durable and can play more than two or three games without getting injured. But, you know, you can make the case that since 2018, there has been no worse starting goaltender in the NHL than Martin Jones. So, you know, the Flyers are kind of banking on him rekindling some of that play he had from his early on years in San Jose. The Flyers goaltending coach nowadays worked with Jones when they were both back in Los Angeles in, I believe, the early 2010s. So, I mean, look, goaltending is still a question mark. I think Carter Hart will get there eventually, but this is a year where he really has to step up to the plate. He got a fairly decent-sized contract, three years at a shade under $4 million per season. And I think that Carter Hart has already proven to us that he can play at a high level. I think against the Montreal Canadiens, he was their team MVP in the 2020 playoff bubble. But... You know, he has a lot to prove after this year. I think he'll get there, especially with an improved defense, but. The time is now for Carter Hart. Oh,
4: absolutely! Like the ceiling is so high on him, and I, I and I, I saw the Martin Jones signing almost like when the Canadians got J- Jake Allen, maybe not of that same level, but more and more teams are are seem to be relying on the that um, goalie tandem that seems going to be able to split more games instead of having that one goaltender goaltend seventy games, for example, and the rest
2: just gets a handful. Uh, one more question that I have that's kind of draft related, or it, it is the draft, but it's not, it's, it's, it's kind of um, lower, a lot lower, um, like more unknown than the Cole Caulfield one. Is for three consecutive seasons, the Habs and Flyers swapped uh, seventh round picks of <laughs> the Habs sending in a seventh of the next draft to get a seventh. And the three prospects that Montreal got in those trades. Um, were uh, Caden Primo, who is a legit goalie prospect. Brett Stapley, who could be a fourth-line center down the road. He's doing decently well in the NCAA. And uh, Rafael Pinal, who is one of our favorites on this podcast. Just hardworking. He is likely going to make the NHL at some point in some regard because he, he's, he's going to work hard enough to make it somehow. Uh, and just wanted to hear like, like a Flyers fan perspective of like that weird thing of just constantly swapping seventh round draft picks.
7: Well, it, it definitely was funny because, like you said, it was like three years running where they would just swap the bottom pick in the draft for you know. Yeah, in like we lot have a we have a
4: thing going on apparently.
7: Yeah, exactly. And I guess like, look, it worked out for the Montreal Canadiens specifically with Kane Primo, but you also have to understand, Sebastian, is that. During the Ron Hexall era from 2014 to late 2018, you know, all the Flyers did was draft. And in a lot of ways, he drafted strictly average. So when you look at the Flyers' system, they have a lot of mediocre to average prospects who can theoretically come in and carve out a spot on the team's bottom defensive pairing or fourth line. And then, you know, specifically goaltending, the Flyers have drafted a ton of goaltenders with decent ceilings that kind of maybe rival that of Caden Primo, like guys like Samuel Ersan and Kirill Kirill Istamenko and Felix Sandstrom, addition to Carter Hart, another guy, Ivan Fedotov. So and then, like I said, you have so many of these prospects like Maxim Shushko and Isaac Ratcliffe and Noah Cates and Connor Bonneman and then Tanner Lazinski. like all these guys who they're nice players. But in the grand scheme of things, what are they going to be? Best case, everyday fourth liners, which, you know, depending who you ask and I'll use me specifically. I prefer veterans on that fourth line. And I think the Montreal Canadiens are indicative of what good fourth line veterans players can be. What happened in the playoffs with Corey Perry and Joel Armia and Eric Stahl? That's just my preference. So do I constantly want to be filtering, you know, young guys in their early 20s in and out of a fourth line when you're trying to have cup aspirations? I mean, it's highly debatable. So, I mean, aside from it being just kind of funny that it was like a running theme for three years or so, I think it will prove to be rather inconsequential for the Flyers.
4: Yeah, on the topic of the fourth line, it's been a topic of discussion on our show. Last episode, and I think episode two, if I remember correctly, we were debating about the, the Habs' bottom six being exceedingly deep and to a point where we actually uh, spend the, mo- the most amount of money, for that matter, on those bottom six. But um, but on another Canadian's related note, Anthony, uh, one of the questions I'm sure that a lot of people you know, who's listening to this uh, is probably asking themselves, and I mean, there's nothing really to say, but I mean, the name is there. The Philadelphia Flyers happen to have two ex-Canadians coaches behind the bench. We've, you know, moved, long time ago, we've moved on from Alain Vigneault because he's carved his reputation mostly with the Vancouver Canucks. And now that he's he's with the Flyers and everything, but you guys got Michel Terrier behind the bench who uh, twice we uh, booted out as quickly as we humanly could. So (laughs) maybe, you know, maybe with your insider knowledge, how, how how is this team responding to uh, someone of not just Terrier's statistic, uh, not statistic, strategical approach, excuse me, but someone of his temperament as well. I mean, how, how, how are the, players and even the fans for that matter, how are they responding to having someone like Terrien behind the bench alongside uh, Alain Vigneault?
7: Oh my God. I think the fans wanted Terrien fired the second that the ink dried on the contract. <laughs> <play>. <laughs> and like, look, you know, Poor you're guy. trying to understand. Yeah. And look, Michel Terrien, I think that he is literally there because him and Alain Vigneault are friends. I think that's as far as it goes. You know, he runs oh yeah, the power oh. play and coaches the forwards. Uh, The power play to me hasn't been great under his watch. But at the same time, I look at the player personnel and how the power play was operating before he got there. And I'm not going to leave it all at his feet. Like, I mean, the Flyers lack dynamic forwards, especially given the decline of Claude Giroux in recent years. You know, he's still a great top six player, but he's not that hundred point guy that we came to know, let's say, in the mid 2010s. And then, you know, they don't have really a sniper, quote unquote, you know, they're up until this year. Now they'll have Yandel and Ristalainen But, you know, especially with Gostaspier not playing every game because he just wasn't good enough as a five on five defenseman. You know, they never really had a true power play quarterback. So. I'm going to reserve judgment on Terrier until what I see what he can do this year with like a bit of new forwards in the offensive group and now actual good personnel to run it from the back end. And as for Alain Vigneault, like I've been a long defender of his. Like obviously, you get this whole narrative of oh, he built his career and his reputation on the backs of two Hall of Fame goaltenders with Luongo and Lundqvist. I find that an extremely lazy argument. Like, okay, so you have to win with bad goalies to be legitimate. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, because anybody,
4: anyone could coach a team with Hall of Fame goaltenders that easily, right? So yeah, it exactly. It, it is a lazy argument, yeah.
7: It, it's a lazy argument because, you know, if you use Joel Quenville, like, oh, like, the only reason he had success is because he had the best winger of the last generation. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, exactly. I think that's a bit – I think that Alain Vigneault – sometimes struggles to adapt. I think we saw that with um, against the, uh, the New York Islanders and a lot of fans turned on him this year, but here's the thing is that since 2012, the Flyers have won one playoff series. And that was with Alain Vigneault steering the ship. So I think he gets a good kick at the can this year. That's why I don't think he was fired after last season. And I agree that he should not have been fired But I think that now the clock is ticking because general manager Chuck Fletcher turned over 25% of his roster, which is borderline impossible to do in a salary cap era, more so when it's a flat one. And now the ball is really in Vigneault's court. So, I mean, I think the fans struggle with Vigneault's tactics sometimes as more of kind of like an old school coach, but as long as the Flyers are winning like they were for a large portion in 2019-20, I think that erases a lot of the skepticism of Vigneault and, by extension, Michel Terrier.
4: Anthony DeMarco, NHL correspondent with uh, the fourth period, is chatting with us. Unfortunately, Anthony, we're starting to run out of time, but uh, you know your contribution here has been absolutely excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. But I will ask you one last question because I'm not gonna end this interview talking about the Flyers. We're gonna talk about Bleu Blanc Rouge, and you're gonna tell me what your predictions are for this year's Montreal Canadian. Um
0: oh, no, no, know, no 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 I- no 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 you don't need you don't need to do that big sigh. Okay, <laughs> you can be a little
4: positive. <laughs> <laughs> Look, this is not I
7: I personally think they're going to miss, but I will preface it by saying that it's not going to be. Come on. (laughs) Look, 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 look. Honestly, I think it's because you got to look at the rest of the the field, right? Like, let's start with the Atlantic. Is it fair to say that regular season, it's fairly locks to, to bank on the Lightning and the Bruins and or not even the Bruins and the Leafs making it? Those two teams, Leafs
4: and Lightning. You can even throw in the Panthers for that matter.
7: Yeah, there you go, the Panthers. Yeah. So now I think Montreal will come in in the wild card mix. I think that they could mm-hmm. surpass the Boston Bruins, but I'm looking more at the Metropolitan Division because when you look at the Metropolitan Division, there's only really one team in the Columbus Blue Jackets that you can definitively say they're not a playoff team. Every other team in the Metro, you can make a serious case can contend for a playoff position. Like, look at the teams who didn't make it last year. The Flyers turned over 25% of their roster. The New York Rangers spent all year trying to get tougher. Then you look at the New Jersey Devils, who made the biggest splash-in of the offseason, going out and getting Dougie Hamilton, signing Thomas Tatar, adding Jonathan Bernier. Like, there are a lot of teams that are going to be in the hunt for that wildcard position beyond the Boston Bruins. Because I think that, you know, in light of them losing a guy like Tuka Rask and Yara not going to be there and you're kind of rolling the dice with Linus Allmark as your full-time starter. And then David Krejci retires. Like, I could really hear the argument that the Canadians will be a better team than the Boston Bruins this year. But then I'm also saying, who's going to step in for Phil Denneau? Is Jake Evans ready to take on that role as, like, the premier defensive forward? Can Jasperi Kotkaniemi finally take that next step and show some more consistency in his game? Can Ryan Paling finally make the crack? Like, I love this team when I look at their wingers. Like, they're arguably the deepest team down uh, at wing. I love the addition of Matsupero. You know, they bring back all, you know, Joel Armia, Arturi Lekanen, all these guys. Mike Hoffman's going to be a hell of a player on the power play. But for me, it is just that center ice position. I think that they're going to survive the Weber loss fairly well. I really like David Savard, one of the more underrated defensemen in the NHL. I think Alexander Romanov is going to take a step. So, I mean, for me, it's really going to come down to that center ice position. So I'm not definitively saying they're going to miss. But because of the hole and maybe the lack of depth down the middle of the ice, I'm just trepidatious when I match them up against the likes of the other teams in the Metro who, you know, even the Pittsburgh Penguins, because you look at the top three teams in the Metro, is it going to be the Islanders, the Hurricanes and the Capitals? And then you have the Penguins and the Flyers and the Rangers and the Devils all fighting for that wildcard spot along with the Bruins and the Canadians, it's going to be tough. There are going to be two or three very good teams that are going to miss the player, the playoffs this year, just because there just aren't, isn't enough real estate for all of them to get in.
4: All right. Anthony DeMarco, NHL correspondent for the fourth period. Uh, you could actually follow him on Twitter. As a matter of fact, at a D Marco 25. Uh, he's a uh, very active on the Twitter, Anthony. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. And, uh, we're going to give, um, you know, we're going to set this up right now. We need to uh, talk to each other again in April when I uh, shoved, it, shoved it down your throat that the Canadians didn't make the playoffs <laughs> and the Flyers missed it instead. So <laughs> uh, on behalf of everyone, Scott, Sebastian, thank you also for being part of this uh, little discussion. Anthony, thank you very, very much for being part of this show. Much appreciated, sir.
7: I loved it, boys, and uh, thanks for dealing with all my connection issues. Uh, Very embarrassed, (laughs) but a hell of a first impression I left on you guys. eh? No worries, (laughs) man. All right, boys, take it easy. Thanks, you too.
4: All right, so now it's time for the final segment of the night. It's been a long episode; there was so much to talk about. Uh, but now we're going to talk about a subject that is a little bit sensitive in the province of Quebec. Joining us for this panel: Scott Cowan, Sebastian High, Joshua Rosa, Maria Buabdo, lady, lady and gentlemen, the Arizona Coyotes, our lovable Arizona Coyotes, who's had approximately twenty-five different owners. Gary Bettman, I think, injected about $20 trillion in NHL money to keep this franchise alive. Been a bit of a squabble with the city of Glendale right now in order to keep uh, using the uh, the arena. Now, apparently, the lease is supposed to end as early as this, uh, after this season. Uh, there's been a bit of a squabble. Dah, dah, dah. Some people say ah, it's negotiation tactics and everything. But now... A lot of people are saying, "Like, hey, maybe they can finally get out of here. Maybe they'll finally relocate." And of course, you know, the popular uh, topic is, "Oh, they're probably going to move to Houston because you know, Houston is right beside. They get to stay in the same conference, and they're a huge city. And anywhere, any any, anybody north of Texas doesn't exactly care about them. And yada yada yada." But, however, the eternal optimists up in Canada, in Quebec specifically. We're talking about the potential of the return of the Nordiques. So Joshua, Mr. Rosa, I will start with you. And I, I wish I wish everyone can see us right now because we're all kind of grinning and being like, oh my goodness, this can go sideways so quickly. But, you know, this is an audio podcast. We just have to deal with that with now. So Josh, I mean, I want to know your honest opinion. I mean, is there even an iota of a chance that we're going to see the Coyotes move to Quebec City?
5: Well, for full disclosure, I think it's been mentioned before, but I'm not from Montreal. I'm not from Quebec City. I'm not actually from Quebec at all. I'm an Ontario guy living in a Quebecois world right now. So there's a bit of a degree of separation. And also, I haven't been alive that the Quebec Nordiques have played. I just missed them, unfortunately. So I'm a bit separated from the Quebec franchise, and of course, I would love another Canadian team in the NHL. More Canadian, the better. I just unfortunately don't see it. I think if one of this was the first time that the Phoenix slash Arizona Coyotes were going down, then maybe. But they've had a bankrupt owner that's given it away to the league, and that didn't move them. Gary Bettman's in love with this franchise for some reason and hates Canada because Canada makes them absolutely no money. So as much as I'd love to see the Nordiques back, I just don't see it happening, unfortunately.
4: Maria, I'm sure you have an opinion about this. I mean, what is Gary Bettman's obsession with keeping the Coyotes in Arizona? I mean, I'll mention something that I've read just recently. Apparently, this, the um, the state of Arizona itself has one of the highest uh, media coverage in all of the United States. And that's just not only includes sports, it just includes everything as, uh, as a whole, right? So, I mean, I'm sure it goes beyond that, but I mean, Maria, what's, what's your take? Why is he so obsessed with keeping that team in such a desolate, remote place that's just sucking money off of everyone?
3: I'm not sure about that exactly, but I just think having a team in the U.S. instead of relocating to Canada is just more beneficial, like, financially just makes more money. They have more people, more viewers.
4: Well, you would think, right? I mean, but I mean, uh, Scott, I'm sure, I'm sure you you don't want to interject in this because, you know, you're also like myself and even Sebastian, well, Joshua as well, because he has a whole segment about history. We love history on this show, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) I mean, we've seen the, 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 a franchise in Quebec. It's flourished. There were dedicated, passionate, hardcore fans. But they left because the finan- like, the financial outcome was just disastrous. Like the dollar the Canadian dollar at the time was just absolutely poor. You know, it was a miracle that like all the other teams survived, which well, actually it's one of the reasons why the Jets moved as well is because of the economy. But I mean, it, a, a second time around, Scott, I mean, are they, actually, can, they can
6: they actually succeed under this current financial uh, cloud that we're under? One of the important things to always remember about the original Nordiques is that the Nordiques had one of the most dedicated markets in the NHL, but it was one of the, also one of the smallest markets in the NHL in Quebec. So that's ultimately what led to the demise. Heck, that even almost killed the Canadians in the, mid, in the mid-1990s when Rachel Hull was dealing away every single good player the team ever had. <laughs> they, and Ronald Cory was the president. They almost yeah. got moved as well before things kind of resolved themselves. Mm. And the Quebec Nordiques coming back to the NHL has been a continually interesting anomaly for fans to ponder about for many, many, many years, ever since they went first moved to Colorado and then won the Stanley Cup immediately the year after, which obviously kind of hurt a lot of Quebec Nordiques fans who would have loved to see a cup come to Quebec, as it never quite did, but... I definitely think it's more just speculation at this point. I just don't really think that there's a, really a market for hockey in Quebec that's large enough to be able to support an NHL team, especially when Montreal is so close by. I definitely think having a franchise in area is nice for the Quebec for Quebec City and it definitely gives them a sports franchise that's maybe nearby to cheer for. I know it's not the Quebec Nordiques, but at least it's something. But I definitely think that the Nordiques themselves as being an NHL team in the modern I just don't think it's really something that's going to happen. It falls into the same category as people wanting the Montreal Expos to come back in the MLB. It's just a market that just isn't going to work, even with all the weird ways the MLB's proposed it, like splitting the season with the Tampa Bay Rays and stuff like that. So while I do think it'd be interesting to see the nerdys come back, and I'd love to see it, and I'd probably buy a Nordique jersey. I'd buy a Nordique jersey with Jacob Chicker on the back of it for all I care. But <laughs> I, I, think the, I think Gary Bettman <laughs> is definitely very stubborn when it comes to trying to keep Arizona in Arizona, even if there's pretty much nothing... Really, I know. Really, out front, direct opinion. I know, but there's not really a whole lot to cheer for for the Coyotes at the moment, especially since they've dealt away most of their big star players, and they definitely seem to be in a kind of limbo right now. But even then, I don't think Batman's going to budge on the Coyotes until he absolutely has to. So it it it's, it'll be interesting to see how things play out. It really, it really will be
4: interesting. And Sebastian, since you are uh, one of the one half of the prospects here, I mean, I think you could appreciate though, despite the, you know. Should I say animosity we have against Arizona? I'm not sure. As can, you know, fans from Canada, they did produce Austin Matthews after all. I mean, there's obviously some products that are coming out of Arizona, but like, do you actually think that there that there's still a future in Arizona, or is this just a lame duck at this point?
2: I mean, we've just spent like 10 minutes dunking on Arizona, um, oh, yeah. but like the I thing is, continue they, if you want. They, they have, <laughs> they, they they do have some really like diehard fans right like I, I at least on like hockey Twitter I like there are quite a few people in there yeah, that are coyotes all tw- fans and all like- 12 of them yeah I agree <laughs> <laughs> but like I mean I, I feel like they've just been so hampered by just like terrible owners constantly that like the fan base has also just been kind of like left out to dry in in, in this situation and like yeah I mean Austin Matthews uh, you can say a lot about him I don't love the guy but Phenomenal player who comes from Arizona, right? Like, like, like they are. They, they do have some products coming out now, and um, yeah. I mean, it's always a difficult thing when you move a different a franchise away, right? Like, it's a bit easier with Atlanta because they had two attempts that both failed miserably, um, especially once Kovalchuk left. And but like with, with a team like like Arizona. It, it also hurts to, like, tear a team away from a fan base, right? Like, like we saw that with the same thing with the Nordiques, right? Just, like, the, the heartbreak. And, like, even though it's Arizona, it's the southern U.S. where hockey probably shouldn't be, like, you do have diehard fans down there. And it, it does still hurt to tear that away. So at least if you move them to, like, Houston or something, it's still close enough by where, like, you can still, like, have a connection. But it's, like, it's the same thing. Like, like you don't see too many Colorado Avalanche fans in Quebec anymore because just is so far away whereas if they've moved to like i don't know hamilton or uh halifax or somewhere that, that that's still like yeah that partisanship would stay a little more alive yeah like kind of keep it right mm-hmm. and like the first time really that like uh the avalanche like showed like their connection to the nordic was this season with the reverse retro jerseys before that it was a really like like a tough break of not really showing that that history and, yeah, like with, with, with the coyote, it's... Let's be honest. Okay, the,
4: re- the reverse retro jersey, though, was a huge marketing ploy that actually ended up being very successful. They were piggybacking off the Carolina Hurricanes who were using the Hartford Whalers, you know, essentially. And they used the retro jerseys once. People went bad <laughs> crazy.
2: yeah, And,
4: you know, and then everyone was like, oh, we could do the same. And then you saw, you know, like the Norgeek, which was a great jersey. I mean, make no mistake about it. But, I mean, come on. You
6: know, it wasn't Scott, really an attachment to Quebec. It was more just an attachment to, to money. money. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly. exactly. <laughs>
4: Scott made a great point earlier when he was talking about the Expos. Uh, I'll, I'll do the quick comparison and then we'll move on to something else. Like we were talking about, he was talking about the Expo. The Expo is exactly the same thing, guys. I mean, I'm a huge baseball fan. I love, like, I, I still cling on to that hope that I will one day be able, you know, to go see the Expos and everything. But that's what, that was the situation. That's exactly what the, what what you know those dozens and dozens of fans of the coyotes are living year after year you know it's a small market that's been you know although you know they they have like the support of reference. the league it's, they're living
6: in a continual blue monday yeah exactly oh that hurts man, that <laughs> Sorry, hurts, brother, man. That's <laughs> <laughs> but you know
4: but you know it's it's Like imagine you know you're you're following a team and you're so dedicated to it and year after year you know you're like oh wow we got some good players and then it just gets gutted and it gets traded it went, you know ends up being a farm team for everyone else and everything but then you uh, were mentioning the Atlanta Thrashers and I'm sorry but don't make fun of the Thrashers at their number one pick Patrick Stefan Josh I'm gonna ask you a question and then we'll, we'll ask everyone what they think who is your favorite I would say dead franchise or former franchise. That, you know, if you had a time machine, you could go back, you would revive them, and they would still be us. Josh, your pick. Go first.
5: Uh, I've got two words for you. You could have your... Hey, Monday- hey,
4: this, is a, this is a kid-friendly show. So anybody who was alive during the Wrestling Attitude Era, knows what those two words are. So please, be careful, man. <laughs> oh, yes.
5: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you could keep your Monday night football themes, your little... World Juniors' uh, jingles, the (laughs) Hockey Night in Canada, new and old songs. For To me, my favorite sports song is the Brass Bonanza. I want to see the Hartford Whalers back so badly. I love the song. Their jerseys are great. I think their logo is one of the best things I've seen uh, sports logo-wise. Unfortunately, they were in Hartford and... Where even is Hartford? I think they played in a mall, Connecticut. <laughs> I think they played in a mall, like my little OHL team, local OHL team yeah. plays in a mall. But they were fantastic, and I love that song. So I just want to hear that three or four times a night.
4: Yeah, the issue with it with the uh, the Whalers, obviously. Well, yeah, there was the ownership issue and whatnot, but there was the um, the whole ordeal, the fact that they were right beside boston like massachusetts is just right beside so boston had a little issues with them being there and everything but they almost survived you know like little known fact about the about the whalers is that they left because they couldn't get a deal for a new arena which which was the bottom line the issue was the government ended up uh, rejecting a proposal from the whalers franchise to build a new arena out of private money so the so it would it would have been almost 100 percent privately funded, and then the and then the state were was only going to give a minimal amount of money with something like 10-20 million dollars or something like that. Not long after the New England Patriots came along and they got financed almost entirely publicly for this state-of-the-art, you know, almost billion dollar um you know stadium. So we know where the you know <laughs> the priorities lied up in um where did you say it was Hartford? <laughs> <laughs> so uh maria your 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 favorite uh, past franchise that you would bring back in a heartbeat
3: i guess i would have to say the thrashers but only because they drafted ventura that's like my biased answer <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's not a bad answer. It's not a bad answer at all. As a matter of fact, you know, it's like we're all Ben Sherrod fans, but the Thrashers. Had, I have to admit, the Thrashers had cool had had cool colors though. Like the jerseys were oh, pretty, yeah, were pretty totally. dope, and everything. It's sure. it's, a, it's a shame that hockey never caught on in Atlanta because they have such a huge population and so many dedicated sports fans, but it just never seems to stick. Right to Cole Patrick's defense, they
6: missed the open net.
4: Oh, yo. Yeah.
6: man, this poor guy. Like,
4: guys the segment has so many low blows it's ridiculous oh. but okay <laughs> sebastian your turn buddy
2: <laughs> okay i i have two very obscure ones like as an old uh, the first well, one of would course, be because the- you're a
4: history professor in making right so
2: <laughs> <laughs> going into going into bachelor's degree that's uh, that's a long road uh but the first one would be the pittsburgh pirates uh which is not only an mlb team but also was a hockey team My goodness, no affiliation sure. <laughs> no affiliation to the mlb team it was just coincidentally uh from uh 1925 to 1930 and uh, the heartbreaker here is that the pittsburgh team relocated to philadelphia and became the quakers um Oh. And they had to cease operations because of the Great Depression. So, yeah. oh, well, yay! No, still yeah. 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 Happy a game, story. So. Um, the the other one would be the Montreal Wanderers. Um, oh, who... yeah, another an, an, another great <laughs> story, Sebastian. Please tell us all about it. <laughs> they only played six games
6: and they won one. So, <laughs> don't don't, don't expect the Wanderers. They won like four oh, Stanley Cups in a row in the in the okay, yes, the NHL. but in the NHL. One win, five losses, and then the arena burned down. And that's exactly <laughs> it. The <river laughs> no, burned down.
2: And the reason for relocation and disbandment was because A, the arena burned down, oh, and B, man. they <laughs> lacked players because of World War One. Like, <laughs>
6: uh, Golden, Gold- can you imagine?
2: Like can, can you imagine an NHL team like, say, I don't know. The Vancouver Canucks have to cease operations because the like Rogers Place burns down and like their entire defensive core which barely exists in the first place has to go fight in a war? Like <laughs> Like oh cool. That's a uh, fun stuff. What a what an uplifting story. So, yeah, I'd in sad to, stories uh, like these I find the humor. This is me, my thing. I'd
6: love to add on to uh, what Sebastian was talking about from able, cuz I think I'm, I'm with you on the idea that I think there are some really great teams from the 1920s and 30s in the NHL, that's what I'll talk about. For me, my two picks would be the Hamilton Tigers and the New York Americans, both of which had one of the greatest players in the NHL, and Wilfred Shorty Green, who was a big all-star for the team. The Tigers uh, disbanded because they went on strike, and then their ownership ended up just cutting the whole team because of that. And the Americans were due to the Rangers. But for my third answer, I'm going to say one thing. If the Seattle Kraken do not make their third jersey, the Seattle Metropolitans, uh, Metropolitan excuse me, jersey, that's something i really like to see. The Seattle Metropolitans were the oh, yeah. first American team to win the Stanley Cup, and they had one heck of a jersey, to say the least. It was pretty dope. And I, th- I think, as a matter of fact, Metropolitans was one of the finalists for the names, wasn't it? I believe
4: so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. My pick – okay, you know what? You guys want to make a dumb pick and a, and a serious pick? I'll do that as well. So my <laughs> obscure pick, we're going to stay in our backyard. I'm going to say the Montreal Maroons. I mean, for the, for, for the only reason that, first of all, also Cup winners – also, you know, giving the Habs a run for their money in terms of attendance and 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 you know, fanatics and whatnot, and their name after a color, you know, the maroon is essentially a, t- a shade mm-hmm. of brown. I mean, that's like how original was that? The jerseys were, were amazing, and I always I always look around sometimes. Like sometimes I'm looking for, you know, like old. You know, replicate jerseys or t-shirts and everything. You don't find many. And Then when you do, you're like, man, they're, they're so gorgeous. So cool. They're gorgeous, man. Back in the days, didn't you how to make a proper sweater? But my actual the OG
2: Red Blacks, the OG Red Blacks. colors. Uh-huh. Yeah, well,
4: yeah, but you have to say Red Blacks in big capital letters and yell it out loud if you're a CFL fan. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Sebastian. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> but my actual pick is going to be the Quebec Nordiques. I mean, you know, it's my generation as well giving away my age a little bit here. I mean, I have I was old enough to see the rivalries between the Habs and the Canadians, you know? When the first round of the 93 playoffs happened, everyone was on the edge of their seat because Quebec had a better team, on paper at least, right? And then they started winning, one games, two games, and then once we came back, and it was going back and forth. And the next thing you know, you're like, man, we could lose this one. But then... You know, we happen to have a goalie named Patrick Watt, which helps a little bit, especially come playoff time. And But, you know, all the stories for anybody who's listening, who's, you know, 20 years and under or whatever, who hasn't, hasn't had a chance to see the Nordiques play, I would say that nine, nine out of ten stories are true. Yeah, it was that intense. Because there was a time before the globalization of hockey where people played for the sweater they were wearing. Players, you know, when you were looking at the rosters at the time, you know, you were looking at Alain Coté, there were Stéphane Fizet eventually, uh, you know, and it versus Vincent Danfoss, Patrick Roy, all, and also it's like guys from Montreal versus guys from Quebec, and they, you know, and they, they, uh, there was actually an, an actual rivalry, and it went all the way into the stands. You know, you hear about the Yankees against the Red Sox, for example, in, in, in baseball and how they absolutely loathe each other. But that's how it was. You know, it was Montrealers against Quebecers. And even if you go today, you know, people of a certain age, you know, they still look down on Montrealers, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, you're you're from montreal you know you're know, you an Anglo or whatever and then they would hear your montreal accent and your montreal ways and I'm like yeah man, wow okay today you know you don't really see but at the time that's how it was man like it was it was city versus city it was your, it was you against your dad wearing different colors you know it was your drunken uncle coming in with his ridiculous winnipeg jet jersey that had absolutely nothing to do with the rivalry at the same time but it was households would light up You know, on a Saturday night, Montreal against Quebec, forget it. There's no one in the streets because everyone's watching the game, no matter how crummy both seasons were having, because you knew something was going to happen, you know? And we heard, of course, of the uh, Good Friday Massacre, for example, being, you know, probably the most (laughs) intensely playoff game ever played because I think it was, what, like 900,000 penalty minutes or something, and I'm almost
6: not exaggerating, right? (laughs) You know, so... There's there's definitely an aura to the Nordiques canadians rivalry that hasn't been seen in Montreal sports in quite a long time. No,
4: exactly. I don't
6: I don't think it's going to happen anymore. I think Quebec fans are still feeling Scott Young scoring that goal in
4: 1993. Or Alain Cote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, bon le but? bon le but? bon le but. No, the goal the goal was good, but we're never going to admit that, right? So All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's all the time we have on behalf of myself, Scout Cowan, Sebastian Hyde, Joshua Rosa, Maribu Abdo. A big thank you to Kevin Reason and Anthony DeMarco for joining us on this show. This has been another outstanding episode of Puck and Roll. Here is... Once again, Shane Ivers giving him all the credit for all this music with our fantastic intro, outro, and everything in between. Shout out to Chanel Marie for all the voiceovers as well. We will see you next week.